Hi everyone. Welcome to the Desi Crime Podcast. I am Ashwarya, your host for this episode. And I'm Aryan. Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Patreon and subscribe for amazing exclusive features like merch, awesome extra episodes, early access episodes, video calls with us and more. To help the podcast out and to avail these benefits, go to www.patreon.com/desicrime and select a tier that works best for you. For this episode, I also have to thank two very specific people. My parents. Thank you for your constant love and support in running this podcast, for being our first ever investors and for wanting nothing in return. For your seemingly endless supply of case recommendations and for making everyone listen to the podcast whether or not they want to. I love you. On one seemingly normal evening on the 14th of April in the year 2008, a family of 8 people in the small village of Bavankhedi in Uttar Pradesh was getting ready to go to bed. Following their nightly ritual of drinking tea together before going to sleep like maybe every other Indian family, 7 out of the 8 members of this family including a 10 month old baby never woke up to see another day. The sole surviving member, 23-year-old Shabnam Ali, who is hysterical, her entire family, everyone she ever loved is dead after all. This is the story of a brutal mass murder, a love story, and a court verdict that made history in independent India. This is the story of Shabnam Ali. Seven dead people in one household. I am getting very strong Burari flashbacks. <laughs> Mass death in one single family is terrifying. Just the thought of that is terrifying. Imagine what being in a house that has seen tragedy like that feels. Imagine what a town that experiences something like that goes through. And to have just one surviving member, I can't begin to imagine what it must be like to be Shabnamali. and it's my job to make sure you know exactly how all of that feels <laughs> to make you imagine what standing inside a house with bodies all around feels like and to make sure that you can imagine what being in shabnam's shoes was like that night but for that i'll have to take you back to that night the night of april 15th 2008 to the village of bavan khedi located just a few kilometers away from moradabad in the state of uttar pradesh In Bavankhedi were acres and acres of beautiful mango orchards owned by the wealthy families in the village. On one of these mango orchards, spanning 10 acres of land, stood the house of the Ali family, a two-story bungalow which was home to eight people. Usually from inside the house, you could hear the sound of laughter or the sounds of a 10-month-old baby playing and making a mess. By all standards the Ali household was happy and successful they really couldn't ask for much more than they had 
But at 2 a.m. on the 15th of April 2008, the village of Bhavankheri heard a different kind of noise come from inside the Ali house. It sounded like a woman, a woman crying in distress, shouting at the top of her lungs, Bachao! Bachao! Help! This shouting and wailing was heard by Hasmat Hussain, a retired primary school teacher whose house was one of the closest to the Ali family bungalow. The moment Hasmat heard the cries, he assumed there had been a robbery and he put on his shoes and ran towards the Ali house to help. On the way there, he woke his son up and got a few other neighbours along the way just in case the robbers were still there inside the house and the Ali family needed help. When Hasmat and the villagers reached the sprawling bungalow, they tried opening the main gate, but weirdly, the main gate was locked from the inside. If there had just been a robbery inside, who locked the gate from the inside this quickly? But there was no time to think about any of this. They could hear the woman shouting and they needed to find her and make sure she and the family were okay. The men, unable to get inside the house because of the locked main gate, walked along the boundary of the house following the sound of the shouting woman until they finally reached a point from where they could see the first floor balcony right above them. On that balcony, they didn't see the eight family members or the robbers. All they saw was a hysterical young woman crying uncontrollably. This woman was 23-year-old Shabnam Ali, the daughter of the man who owned this gorgeous house and the mango orchards around it. It was Shabnam's screams that had woken the village up. Shabnam was no stranger to the men standing below the balcony. In fact, all villagers knew Shabnam well. They had seen her grow up in Bhavankhedi. She was the middle child and the only daughter of wealthy landowner and college art professor, 55-year-old Shaukat Ali and his 50-year-old wife, Hashmi. In Shaukat Ali's two-storied bungalow, located in the middle of the mango orchards he owned, eight members of his family lived in a happy and bustling joint family. These eight members were Shaukat Ali and his wife, Hashmi, their daughter, Shabnam, Shabnam's younger brother, 22-year-old Rashid, Shabnam's older brother, 35-year-old Anis, Anis's wife, Andrum, and their 10-month-old little baby boy, their first baby, Arsh. And lastly, Shabnam's cousin sister, 14-year-old Rabia. Uh, okay, so big families, as fun <laughs> yeah. as they are for two days. Right. I can't imagine being and living in a big, big, like a joint family for, you know. More than two days. More than two days. My entire childhood. I... I couldn't I remember whenever I went back to my hometown during the summers when I was growing up every time a relative came up to me and said do you remember me beta and I was like guys I I don't like you're so <laughs> many people because right. my ancestral you know house has the joint family living there so I really couldn't imagine living in that chaos I think privacy is that thing you enjoy if you have it and you learn to not want it if you don't have it Perhaps. so people that grow up in joint families seem to really really but, love it but it's not like I got a lot of privacy <laughs> in my four you know people household anyway to me it's just the chaos it's, there's so right. much chaos in a big family there's so much drama sorry I'm going this is I'm making this a therapy session about my childhood <laughs> no but I think the Ali family enjoyed living together they seemed like a happy and bustling family as per all accounts but they weren't just a rich family of landowners. They were all incredibly well-educated too. 
Shabnam's father was called Master Ji by the other villagers because he was an art teacher at the Taharpur Intermediate College. And people remember him fondly even today. Quote, Master Ji was a great man. He used to give free tuitions to children who needed them and never discriminated on any basis when it came to opportunities, end quote, said a villager from Bhavankheri. Shabnam's elder brother Anis was a well-off engineer in Jalandhar and her younger brother Rashid was studying to become an engineer in Meerut. Shabnam herself was well-educated. She had a double MA in geography and English and then went on to work as a Shiksha Mitra or a government school teacher in a primary school in Bhavankheri and she was everyone's favourite. Shabnam was artistically very talented, with many claiming that she had inherited her father's fingers and his skill. She was also academically bright and so she was her teacher's and professor's favourite. She was caring and fun and so she was her student's favourite. <laughs> she was thoughtful and trustworthy and so she was her friend's favourite. And now Shabnam is my favourite. because you <laughs> As, made, she should, as she, should be. she should be. Shabnam sounds great. In fact, one of Shabnam's friends from back in college, Usman Sefi, recounts what an incredible woman she was, saying, quote, we would often travel on the same bus from our respective villages in Amroha to college. When I failed in the second year of graduation and wanted to quit education, she pushed me to fill the improvement form and paid my fees. Once, when some criminal elements got into a spat with me in the bus, she intervened and stood up for me. End quote. She does sound like an incredible woman. Right? And this is how not just Shabnam, but the entire Ali family was remembered as caring and loving people who did good in the community they lived in. But that night, something had happened within the walls of the Ali house that had left Shabnam crying and hysterical on the balcony of her own home, shouting for help. The men ask her to come down, but she keeps crying, saying they were going to kill her next. The men ask her who's going to kill her and what she means by kill her next. They ask her where everyone else was. But Shabnam was in no state to answer any questions. She just kept repeating the words, they're going to kill me next. The men tell her she was safe. They were there to protect her if someone was still in the house. They tell her she was going to be fine but that she needed to get off the balcony walk down the stairs and open the front gate to the house so the men could come in. Finally, Shabnam calms down a little and comes down to open the door for the villagers. The villagers run into the house and see Masterji's bloody body lying in the courtyard with his throat no slit very deep. The men stopped dead in their tracks. They knew what they were seeing in front of them would never leave their memory. But they had no idea the bloody nightmare that was waiting for them inside all of the other rooms in the house. The villagers make their way through the courtyard which extends into a balcony and opens into three rooms. They walked into the first room adjacent to the courtyard, a room that belonged to 22-year-old Rashid. There were splashes of blood all over the vibrant green walls and Rashid's butchered body lay on the bed. The men grew weak in the knees. Rashid was just a baby. He was 22 years old with his entire life in front of him. What pure evil was capable of killing a young boy so mercilessly? 
the men walk out of Rashid's room and make their way to the second room, the room belonging to Shabnam's older brother Anis and his wife Andrum and their newly born 10-month-old baby boy Arsh. If I was there that night, you all, this room would have probably been the hardest to walk into. Inside this room lay dead Anis and his wife Andrum, both with their throats slit, with blood all over their bed covers and blood splashes all over the walls, indicating the sheer force and hate that they were all killed with. But next to the dead bodies of Anis and Andrum, also lay the dead body of 10-month-old Arsh. There was no blood on Arsh's body, his throat hadn't been slit, but there were strangulation marks around the baby's neck. He had been killed too. In the third remaining room, the room in which Shabnam should have been sleeping that night, lay the dead bodies of Shabnam's mother Hashmi and her 14-year-old cousin Rabia, both lying in pools of blood, killed with their throats slit. By the time the men were done inspecting the house and realizing that an entire family had been brutally massacred in their village that night, the police had arrived outside the beautiful house whose history will now always have tragedy in it. Ashwara, so when you say Shabnam was supposed to be sleeping in the third bedroom, uh-huh. It just means that that's where she typically slept every night, right? Yes, that's and correct. And she wasn't sleeping there this particular night? What, where was she? Okay, so Aran, once the cops arrived, they knew their one chance of solving this case. Their answer to who did this and why they did this lay somewhere in Shabnam's version of what went down that night. The way you're saying Shabnam's version just makes me suss out already. Don't jump the gun. Don't jump the gun just yet. That night, Shabnam obviously still wasn't completely in her senses. So they let Hasmat Hussain, the first neighbour to come to Shabnam's rescue, take her back to his home for the night. Over the next few days, Shabnam recounted the evidence of April 14th to the cops. The family had dinner, the family had tea together before falling asleep. Eventually, everyone went to their rooms to sleep, but it was an exceptionally hot and humid night. That was when her father decided to sleep out in the courtyard and she decided to go and sleep on the terrace. But then it started to rain at around 2 a.m. that night. And I'll just point this out. It's fairly common to sleep on the terrace. Oh, very um, common. In, in, in villages, in villages it's very common. It, not just common, it is so much better to sleep yeah, on the terrace. I agree. So that's what happened this night. It was hot. It was humid. In fact, it was humid. It was about to rain that night. So that makes sense. So Shabnam's father and Shabnam decide to sleep outside. But when the rain started falling on her face and woke Shabnam up, she decided to go sleep downstairs. Which is when she discovered that while she was asleep, her entire world had been turned upside down. Every single member of her immediate family had been brutally killed and somehow she was spared her life because she slept on the terrace. No way. She claims she is sure that the killers climbed up the wall of the house and came into the balcony and from the balcony entered the house to kill everyone and then exit from the main door. Exit from the main door. Wait, you just said that when the villagers arrived, the main door was locked from the inside. So, did she lock the door once the murderers left? Yes, correct. 
But that wasn't the only locked door in the house, Aryan. The door that connected the balcony to the inside of the house was also locked from the inside. So once Shabnam found the dead bodies, her first instinct wasn't to call the police. In fact, she never called the police at all. But one of the first things she did was lock the entry and exit point of the killers. Ishara, I will say this though, right? If I mean, I can't even imagine what it would be like to be in such a situation. Right. But I don't think my first reaction would be to call the police. If I've woken up, yeah. I come down and I see every single person in my family is murdered. And I have a feeling that the murderers have left. Like, right. they're not in the... I would, you know, I can see in a universe me locking the doors because I'm scared and I don't want anybody to re-enter. I completely agree. The fact that she locked the doors seems normal to a lot of people, including myself. Because why would she not be terrified that the killers right. would come back and kill her too? Also, take in account some amount of irrationality. Like, a person right. has just seen the most irrational scene of their life. They will be irrational. I agree with you, Arjan. But to some people, including the investigating officer of the case, R.P. Gupta, this detail stood out. Not a lot, but just enough to Mm. make him think twice. And the moment this detail stood out, all of a sudden, it seemed like everything in the house pointed to this mass murder being an inside job. Not even necessarily Shabnam's job, Mm -hmm. but just an inside job. For example, if the murderers did enter through the balcony... Where was the ladder they used to climb up this 14 feet tall wall? There was none. There was only a thin drainage pipe, which the police ruled was too weak to carry the weight of an adult human. If they didn't enter from the balcony, no other entry point possibly made sense because there was no sign of forced entry. Shabnam claimed she slept on the terrace that night, but the terrace had no bed sheets or pillows on it. In fact, Shabnam's sheets had been neatly arranged next to her mother, indicating that she was planning on sleeping there. The police also found an unidentified SIM card next to Shabnam's phone inside the house. It wasn't her SIM card. Inspector R.P. Gupta also noticed that while the entire family had been brutally killed, there were no struggle marks anywhere. How can seven people, seven people be killed one by one by one without the others who were alive in the house hearing anything and why would none of the seven fight back? The cops had also recovered an empty strip of ten tablets of what they at the time assumed were quote, nasheki golia or in English sedatives and next to all the dead bodies they found cups of tea and water. All of this was enough of a big deal to Inspector Gupta that when the next morning, Uttar Pradesh Chief Minister Mayawati visited the scene of the crime and promised Shabnam 5 lakh rupees as compensation after this terrible tragedy, Inspector Gupta met with Mayawati privately to ask her not to transfer the money just yet, to only give him 48 hours because he could sense that this story wasn't as simple as Shabnam made it out to be. Ashwara, what it means for Chief Minister Mayawati or former Chief Minister Mayawati to actually go to the site in a village for a murder just makes me realize how big how big that murder must have been in the news at that time right that's you know that's that just insane. that's insane that the chief minister visited for a local incident and not just visited promised 5 lakhs, five lakhs on yeah. the spot but inspector gupta had asked her to wait 
For the next 48 hours, Inspector Gupta spent every waking hour on this case. He got the body sent for postmortem, asked the telecom company for Shabnam's cell phone records, and turned the crime scene upside down in an attempt to find evidence. And slowly but surely, a clearer picture of the night of the 14th began to emerge. Firstly, from inside the house, the police found a pair of Shabnam's clothes with blood on them. clothes she wasn't wearing when the villagers arrived at the crime scene so while people can maybe understand shabnam locking all the house doors after finding her entire family murdered the fact that she changed her clothes doesn't sit right with anyone including the cops within those 48 hours the postmortem reports returned and flipped this case on its head and conclusively answered the question why did none of the seven family members fight back when they were being killed one by one why were there absolutely no struggle marks anywhere in the house or on the bodies the answer was gut wrenching from six of the seven bodies the doctor found traces of diazepam or valium the common anti-anxiety and seizure medication also used for sedation the only family member without diazepam in their system was 10 month old arsh who was strangled this made sense because there was no possible way of poisoning a baby who was just breastfeeding mm. from the mobile phone records the cops actually realized that shabnam wasn't asleep at the time of the murder in fact just 5 minutes before the murder and 10 minutes after the murder shabnam was on call with someone someone who she had spoken to 55 times on just the day of the murder itself oh my god <laughs> and aryan 900 times in that month alone That's like thirty calls. Yeah, in I'm putting 30 that days. into perspective. To put that into perspective, that's fifty-five calls a day is more than two calls every hour for twenty-four hours, and nine hundred calls a month <laughs> is thirty calls every day for thirty days, and the month wasn't even complete. These calls were made between seven thirty p.m. on April fourteenth and one o nine a.m. the following day. and there was a 31 minute gap between these calls this 31 minute gap coincided perfectly with the medically determined time of the deaths then another call from 1:40 am to 2:09 am was made it was after this that shabnam cried out for help the number with which shabnam was making all of these calls belonged to a man from bavankhedi a man about shabnam's age a man named salim And remember the unidentified SIM card the cops found inside the house? That SIM card also belonged to Salim. On the night of the murder, Shabnam calls Salim, but not the cops. Locks all the doors, climbs up the balcony and starts shouting for help. That's weird to the cops and they know they need to bring Shabnam in for questioning. She and possibly Salim now seem like the keys to solving this murder. It was obvious to the police now that this was a pre-planned murder that was in motion hours before the family went to sleep. The cops knew they had their main suspect in the daughter of the slaughtered family. There was just so much evidence even though it was all just circumstantial. 
but it all pointed to her committing this crime just to clarify for our listeners any evidence that is not dna evidence and is not eyewitness testimony is circumstantial evidence right yes that's correct and that is all this case had mm-hmm. But Aryan by the time the cops wanted to call Shabnam in for questioning which was about 24 hours after the murder she had fallen terribly sick but that is justified in a world where she's innocent and just by the way I am completely team investigator RP Gupta right now <laughs> but if she is innocent right the stress she would be undergoing would be unimaginable right and honestly even if she did do it i bet she's still experiencing the stress of getting caught so either way it makes sense that she's fallen terribly sick by this time so the police order a doctor to conduct a thorough checkup of shabnam blood tests blood pressure everything just so she can be well enough to be interrogated and aryan from this doctor's examination comes probably the most shocking revelation of this entire case shabnam was 7 weeks pregnant. pregnant oh my god but unmarried when the doctor called the oh police to reveal this detail it was almost as if the pieces of this seemingly complicated jigsaw puzzle suddenly moved on their own and fit perfectly together to create the picture of a brutal murder committed by a daughter with every new piece of revealed evidence any doubt that some outsider committed this murder began to disappear The police called Salim and Shabnam in for interrogation together and after hours and hours of questioning they both broke they were in love madly in love she was pregnant with their child for god's sake they really wanted to be with each other so then what was wrong why couldn't they just tell their families and get married from everything we've discussed so far it seems like the ali family was educated and progressive and they loved each other but despite all of that they simply couldn't look past the fact that while shabnam had a double ma in geography and english salim had never graduated from the 5th grade and worked at a wood sewing unit just outside shabnam's sprawling bungalow i have never ever come across an honor killing case uh-huh. where the defining factor was the level of education oh that's not the only defining factor we're getting to it there's more okay While Shabnam's father was a professor in a college, Salim's father owned his own street side pakora stall. All right, so here and comes class and many other factors. That's why I was like, yeah, there has to be oh, something else. Oh, there's another else. one coming. Of course. But perhaps most importantly, Shabnam belonged to a family of Sefi Muslims. There you go. While Salim belonged to a family of Pathans. Yeah. It wasn't enough that he was Muslim. It wasn't enough that they loved each other. Quote they were never meant to be together said Hasmat Hussain the first man to arrive at the Ali house the night of the murder Quote Shabnam's was the most educated family in the whole of Hasanpur Master ji was someone everyone looked up to his eldest son Anis was an engineer in Jalandhar Shabnam had a double MA and taught at the village primary school and Rashid was a final year BTech student lekin sabse badi baat Biradri Alagthi said another village elder The biggest problem was that they belonged to different communities 
there had been a lot of tension between Shabnam and her family for the last few months because of this relationship. And slowly, it became clear to Shabnam and Salim that her family was never going to agree with their want to be with each other. They would never agree with the two wanting to be married. And so, the couple devised a plan. Salim bought the poison and gave it to Shabnam, who used it on the night of the murder. She laced the tea of all six adults in the house with diazepam tablets, which, by the way, she had also used in the past to sedate her family just so she could call Salim over or leave the house to meet him for long periods of time. But that night was different. Once all six members were unconscious because of the drug, Shabnam opened the door to let Salim into the house. Salim entered the house carrying an axe and walked from room to room, where Shabnam held up the heads of her family members and Salim sliced their necks with the axe. Slowly and slowly over the course of the hour, six lives were taken that night in that house, but one still remained. The youngest life of all in the house, 10-month-old Arsh. According to Salim, he had made it clear to Shabnam, the baby was not to be touched. But by the time the other family members were killed, the baby had started crying hysterically. The cries would have raised alarm and ruined the plan. So Shabnam walked over to the baby, put her hands around his neck and strangled him to death. This killing, this last killing was particularly hard for everyone to comprehend. Shabnam's aunt Fatima, for example, said, quote, She was nice until she made friends with girls across the street. Uske baad wo bigar gai. After that, she lost her way. But she never let anyone else touch Arsh. She was very attached to him. This is all strange. End quote. Shabnam then let Salim out of the house. She locked the doors from the inside, changed her clothes, climbed up to the balcony and began to cry for help. While she was doing all of this, Salim disposed of the bloody axe somewhere along the way back to his home and went and lay in his bed pretending to be asleep. When Shabnam's cries woke the town up, Salim got up and followed the other villagers to the Ali house pretending to be there to see what was going on and if everyone was okay. The cops asked Salim to point them to the location of the murder weapon and sure enough, Salim did. From that random roadside spot, the cops recovered the bloody axe and from Salim's house, they recovered a pair of bloody clothes that belonged to him and his mobile phone. On April 19th, five days after the murders, Shabnam and Salim were both arrested. The courts praised Inspector R.P. Gupta and his entire team for the swiftness and professionalism with which they solved the case. Shabnam and Salim were both sent to Muradabad jail, from where Salim was later shifted to the Agra Central Jail. It's important to remember here that Shabnam was seven weeks pregnant when she was arrested. Right, I was about to ask. Yep. And so, in December of that year, she gave birth to her baby, her son, whom she named Muhammad Taj. Pursuant to Indian laws, Taj grew up in the Muradabad jail with his mother till he was seven years old. So is that the standard of procedure where the child of an inmate grows up with the mother up until the age of seven? Not the child of an inmate, any child born within the confines of a prison. Oh, 
lives with the mother till 7 years yes wow and what if they have family outside i don't know what happens before they're 7 but the moment they turn 7 children born inside a prison are either shifted to a children's home or to a hospital if no family member takes the responsibility of raising the child wow fortunately for taj there was someone more than willing to raise him remember usman saifi shabnam's college friend whose tuition fee shabnam had paid off By 2015, the year Taj was to be released from prison, Usman had become a well-off journalist and gotten married to a woman named Vandana and had followed Shabnam's case ardently. When the district child welfare committee looked for people who might be willing to adopt the child, Usman turned up. Quote, "The Shabnam you hear of, the woman on death row is not the Shabnam I know. We went to the same college. She was 2 no years my way. senior." We took the same bus from college, usually sat next to each other and shared jokes. Those days I was weak in all respects, money, health, studies, and she helped me throughout. She once paid my college fee, she would help me with my notes, and she would stand up for me in college. All this just like an elder sister would. But we lost touch after my graduation in 2005. So when this happened, I was shocked. From 2012 I tried 13 times to meet her in jail and my application was rejected each time. Finally, I saw advertisements in Hindi newspapers about the child being put up for adoption. I told my wife that I owe a lot to Shabnam and must do this for her. So we applied and 7 months ago I got a call asking if I wanted to meet her. End quote. When Usman finally met Shabnam, he tells the Indian Express, she had her face covered with a veil as she always does, but Usman said he instantly knew something had changed. She was irritable and wouldn't listen. This Shabnam was different, he says. When he offered to adopt Taj and take care of him like he was his own child, Shabnam told him he wouldn't be able to protect the child. The people who killed my parents will kill him. I can't let him go she said No way you're saying she is still after god knows how many years sticking uh-huh. with the lie i think that somebody else come to the murder She's actually flip flopping she did admit to right, the murder Right she did admit it true to true And now she's kind of turned back on it yes Has she gone crazy I think she might have yes Oh my god Ashwarya I know But eventually Aran she agreed to Usman's request But interestingly, Usman and Vandana can only be Taj's foster parents because Islam doesn't allow adoption. And so, Taj came over to Usman's house where he still is today, being raised with a lot of love and affection. During the course of their trial, the couple that claimed to be so madly in love that they had to kill 7 people turned against each other. In Shabnam's statement eventually recorded to the Supreme Court, she said that Salim had entered the house with a knife through the roof and killed all her family members while she was asleep. So that's technically three stories she's given out so Correct. far, right? Story number 1 that some random group of assailants entered the house, murdered my entire family, I have no idea about it. The second story is that yeah, we did it, we were madly in love. And the third is that Salim did it while I was innocently asleep with a SIM card beside me and my bloody stained clothes hidden somewhere in the house. Correct. 
and not only does Shabnam have different stories, Salim has different stories too. Salim, on the other hand, said that he reached the house only on the request of Shabnam and that when he reached there, she confessed to already having killed all of the others all on her own. So that's four different theories now. Four different stories. And both of these new statements were stark deviations from the original statements recorded in the immediate aftermath of the murder. But by the time they turned on each other, it was too late. Their original statements and the hordes of evidence against them proved that they had committed the murders together. On the 15th of July 2010, District Judge S.A.A. Husseini ruled that Shabnam and Salim should be hanged till death for the multiple murders, a verdict subsequently upheld by the Sessions Court, the Allahabad High Court and the Supreme Court of India. Wow. After this, Shabnam and Salim sent a mercy petition to the president, but their plea got rejected. Shabnam then appealed to the Supreme Court a second time and got her plea rejected a second time after the Supreme Court called this case the rarest of the rare in order that they both be hung. Ishwara, I am not somebody who personally believes in the death penalty, mm-hmm. but I will say it seems like such a bureaucratic nonsense to allow multiple pleas wasting the Supreme Court's time to go over the same case over and over again. It, this takes so much time. This is... Why do we allow multiple petitions for the same case to the same institution? Honestly, Aran, I much rather some wasted time on part of the Supreme Court and the President than an innocent person's life being taken away. No, that is why I'm against the death penalty. But I'm saying right, within a system... Right, but in the system, event that we have the death penalty, it's so much better for people on death row to be able to appeal their right. case if new evidence comes I, to I'm all for and, appealing their case. I'm just saying if it's appealed once, you shouldn't allow like multiple... Like for example, if the Supreme Court rules on a case... But there's not infinite appeals, right? Okay. There's, I think, two to the president you can make. Oh, it. I, okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So there is a finite yeah, amount. Yeah, yeah. Got you, got you, got you. In March of 2021, after a picture of Shabnam with some inmates in the prison was leaked on WhatsApp, she was shifted to Bareilly Jail for security reasons. A picture that you can find on our Instagram at Desi Crime. As of 2022, the Mathra District Jail has begun preparations for Shabnam's hangings with the Pavan Jalad inspecting the hanging house for her. The gallows of the Mathra Jail, according to the Times of India, were built 150 years ago and have never been used in independent (laughs) India. But that's not all. While there are 13 women on the death row in India right now, Shabna Mali is going to be the first one of those 13 to actually be put to death, making her the first ever woman to be executed in independent India. But her son, Taj, now 13 years old, has come forward to plead with President Ramnath Kovind to commute his mother's death sentence. Quote, I love my mother. I have only one demand for President Uncle, that he doesn't let my mother be hanged. End quote. President Uncle appealed Hmm. 
Regardless of what happens to Shabnam and Salim, the village of Bawankhedi will probably continue to live in the shadows of this mass murder for decades to come. The teachers in the local school have noticed how since the murder not a single girl named Shabnam has been admitted as a student meaning parents in the village have stopped using the name Shabnam for their daughters Shabnam's childhood friends many of whom continue to live in Bawankhedi only agree to give interviews anonymously and accept that they wouldn't openly admit to being friends with Shabnam once upon a time According to the Indian Express, men from Shabnam's extended family sit on the cot in the courtyard of the Ali house, right where Master Ji's body was found having bled to death, and they still discuss the killings to this day. Quote, she could have simply run away with Salim. But then how could she? She knew Salim had no money and could never hope to earn. Besides, she was pregnant with his child. Where could she have run? Here there's money, property, said Hussein. Who would have known this quiet girl who always walked with her eyes lowered would do this to her own parents and siblings? And now she's stuck with an illegitimate child. Who will take care of the child after she's gone? said Shabnam's uncle Satar Ali. On the green walls of Rashid's room, the blood splotches still exist. But now 13 years later they're rusty and dull. The room still has a shelf which even today holds books belonging to Anis, Rashid and Rabia all collecting dust. On one wall is a framed work of art signed by Shabnam. There's also a property dispute now over the Ali family house now valued for crores. Shabnam's aunt Fatima claims she and her family have a share in the house too. quote after this ghinoni harkat or despicable act of hers how can she come here and that child she has shabnam's not even married how can he be her waris or heir and quote at salim's house his parents and two sisters still wait in the hope that people will realize that salim did not in fact commit this murder quote you can choose whether to believe me but my son would never do such a thing That night he left home only after the entire village woke up to the deaths. Maine apne sir pe haath rakhwa ke bulwaya tha. I made him swear he hadn't done it. He said he wasn't involved. Beta to beta hai. Sara kasoor meri footi kismat ka hai. He is my son after all. The fault lies in my fate, said Salim's mother. Lives ruined, families destroyed. generations tarnished by the stigma of a mass murder a village left wounded for decades for what like always for love